Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 108 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. How the hell are you? I am not bad at all. How are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. Pretty good. Here we are again, doing another one of these at the uh, usual arbitrary time of the month. Yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, selected entirely at random on a calendar month at the time when it suits us best. Um, <laughs> just so happened to be um, the the first of July for date stamp purposes that we're getting this one recorded. Um, so it's an Andy versus Mitch episode, as we do once every few weeks these days. Last month, I chose Nacho Vigalondo's Open Windows. Thank you for taking that with the requisite good humour. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't say that I did. I guess that may be true. However, it's phone to you this week. And yes. uh, as is traditional, I think, I think it's fair to say that this is broadly true, that I tend to go for things from maybe the last 10 or 15 years, and you generally cast the net a little bit further back than that. And I've certainly done that again this time, I would say. Uh, Yes, we're headed to 1989 this time. Scott Spiegel's directorial debut, Intruder. Yeah, yeah, Scott Spiegel, who would later go on to direct Hostel 3, God bless him. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Coming out here with uh, Intruder, a film... I mean, Scott Spiegel was pretty heavily involved in the Evil Dead films. Pretty good friends with Sam Raimi. And I think that's quite apparent over the course of this film that he's a major influence on the way Scott Spiegel chose to make this film. I would say that that's probably a fair assessment. What about your background with this one then? Again, man, going to tell you, video shops. What a twist. Yeah, yeah, if you can believe it. You know me, I'm a slasher nerd, so I was always on the hunt for new slasher movies. And this was kind of this is kind of late era slashers. This is 1989. The subgenre was well on the wane by this point. Mm-hmm. And when I came across Intruder, it was nothing I hadn't really seen before in terms of well, except for the fact that it was set in a supermarket. But it was nothing I hadn't really seen before in terms of the story. But what hooked me were the effects, because the effects are actually incredibly accomplished and really really nasty um right on that though right i want to have a quick um i want to just ask you something really quickly what is the runtime on this for you 83 okay it's 83 as well um for me i did hear on the uh i did kind of hear on the grapevine when we announced this that uh shudder's version is cut right well i believe that the 88 classics blu-ray i can actually confirm this is uncut give me a little second remastered uncut and uncensored okay and that was what you watched this evening then it was yeah that's the 88 films slasher classics collection blu-ray Okay, cool. I, I watched it uh, on Shutter UK, and like I say, I think that... So I just wanted to kind of get that out there, just and kind of answer that question before we go into this. Sure, 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 sure. Speaking of things that we need to do before we get into this... <laughs> yeah, yeah, have you got the, the, the timer handy? I had forgotten, but I do have it now. Um, Wonderful. So I'm going to count you in. I will start as soon as you start talking. 30 second synopsis of Intruder, how are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good, feeling pretty good. Excellent, okay, three, two, one... Go. Welcome to the Walnut Lake Market. It's late at night, the store is closing, and here we have the night crew coming in to stock shelves, drink beer for some reason, and chop chickens with a massive bandsaw. However, this isn't going to be like any other night shift. These guys are all going to die. They're all going to be murdered by a faceless figure who turns out to be on a lot of the market and stuff on the box. And with five seconds to go, I would say not a bad effort at all. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm pretty solid. Consider, considering that neither of us do these very often, uh, I would say that's not a bad effort at all. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, good, it's a good way to blow the dust off. Yeah, I would say, but I think we should just jump into this thing. I think we should. I'm keen to get... Well, I'm, I'm not keen to get to the end. That, that's a silly thing to say, but I'm keen to get to your opinion. Yeah, uh-huh. I have um, I have, I have kind of mixed opinions on this. Um, I won't say too much about whether it comes out mostly positive or negative, but yeah, there's things that work and things that don't for me. But yeah, I think that we should mention the fact that, for one thing, uh, as a percentage of the overall runtime, the opening credits uh, take up a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got a mysterious moon and a terrible font. I just want to quickly say as well, Danny Hicks, who plays Bill Robertson, the 
Thomas, who's, I guess, there's no there's no point in beating around the bush. He's essentially the film's chief antagonist. Uh, he just passed away the other day. So we we announced this. Well, we recorded the minisode on Sunday, and he passed away yesterday, so Tuesday. That's sad. Yeah, a kind of, a kind of strange piece of timeliness um, there. But, yeah, we have some very recognisable names in the credits here. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. Sam Raimi, Ted Raimi. We also have Renee Estevez, who, in case you're wondering, yes, she is Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez's sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, a special appearance from Bruce Campbell, of course. Yeah, and uh, producer Lauren Spender, who co-wrote this and produced it. And uh, Greg Nicotero, obviously, uh, going on to be kind of a Walking Dead fame. Uh, do the makeup on this. Yeah. yeah, and appearing very fleetingly in a car that pulls up outside the shop towards the end of the film. Ah, now that I did not know. But you were quite right in asserting during your synopsis that we do open on the Walnut Lake Market. Yeah, I've got to say, like, this store looks grubby. Uh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. I would say, uh, by today's standards, I would say there'd be some code violations kicking around in there. Yeah, especially in those back rooms where they're handling the meat. That doesn't look sanitary. Oh, no, not even remotely. Not even remotely. That looks like the dingiest of serial killers' basement. <laughs> yeah, but we do, for some reason, open on what appears to be the Kellogg's Isle. Yeah, right enough, for reasons unknown. And we do also meet Jennifer and Linda here. Yeah, Linda, a name that is uh, overused in the Evil Dead films. Also true, yeah. Linda, kind of secondary here, uh, becomes fairly obvious fairly early doors. Our protagonist here, as it were, is Jennifer. Yeah, but Linda uh, Rennie Estevez, she was marketed as one of the top line actors in this, and she's uh, she's essentially the first to go. Yeah, um, was that was that because of her like adjacency to uh, the more famous Estevez is, or uh, was that because she was prominent at the time? I don't think she was particularly prominent. She went on to be in Heather's. Okay, but I don't think um, there was anything particularly special about Rennie Estevez prior to this, except <laughs> for her. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, Rennie. Except for our uh, rather interesting family history. Mm-hmm. So these two are kind of having a joke with themselves, kind of unprofessionally in my opinion. I would say so, yeah. I think the old guy here's got a point. Yeah, I think that he's got a good reason to be kind of irate. He's trying to get, you know, he's he's already heard over the tannoy that the shop is closing. He knows that he needs to get a step on here. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for but, sure. But no sense of urgency, none whatsoever, from these two who are quite happily yarning away talking about boys and whatever else. And he's just waiting to get his shopping. And of course, when he does get it, his bag's overloaded and it breaks. Oh, uh, yeah. That, I mean, that's sad, to be honest. He drops his wee plant on the floor. But stop talking. Help the old guy, because they're kind of just sniggering at him. Yeah, I do think that they um, uh, I do think that they greet him with uh, a disappointing amount of passivity when he gets into that situation, in all honesty. Also, going to say, I, I'm not entirely sure he's absolutely well. Uh, no, I would say that that is reasonable. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly a fairly kind of awkward guy. But yeah, I would say that you you could be onto something there. So yeah, I think that he's treated a little bit harshly here, which does not pave the way for them to be particularly likable right out of the gate. <laughs> no, 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 not at all, no. However, we have very little time to uh, dwell on this because we do very quickly after this meet Craig, the mm. mulleted, leather-jacketed ex-con. Just before this, we do get a scene of trolley collection, which to me seems like one of the more thankless jobs in a supermarket. Yes, I would say that that's probably true. I mean, I don't want to incur the ire of trolley collectors nationwide, Mitch. Mm-hmm. Far be it from me. But it does seem like a lot of work for little reward. Certainly, I would say little appreciation, I would say, definitely. But yeah, after this, we do meet Craig, who we find out is there because he's trying to win Jennifer back. Mm. I think that mm. given that Craig is kind of presented, like I say, we do come to learn that he's been in prison and he comes off as a little bit of a kind of like street tough <laughs> yeah he's a bearded bad boy i mean you know what that's like well exactly yeah but um so i was quite surprised to find out that his uh his modus operandi for trying to get his ex-girlfriend back was to write her a series of letters that didn't feel uh that didn't feel particularly in step with the craig that we meet here well mitch i'm gonna say i think he was writing those letters from the slammer yeah i think that that would explain a lot in all fairness um <laughs> but at this point i was kind of like oh he doesn't strike me as a love letter kind of guy <laughs> he's just Sounds like the kind of guy that would just scream out of the night and hope it reached you. Yeah, it's like, so Craig, in this instance, yeah, for me, quite a bit less love lettersy and quite a bit more murdery on first impression. I wouldn't even say murdery on the first impression. I would say incredibly handsy, very forward, aggressively forward. Uh, like there's a moment where she goes to speak and he pure smears his fingers into her lips. He's like, shh. He's like, he's like a, a like revoltingly confrontational and physical uh, with yeah. her. Um, yeah. Did you notice, Mitch, the sad lobsters? The sad lobsters. Yes, I did. I, they were, didn't look. They didn't strike me as being long for this world. 
This confrontation between Craig and Jen gets quite aggressive and physical quite quickly because he does start kind of grabbing at her and trying to like wrestle her to the ground and stuff. And it's at that moment when, out of the blue, every single member of staff from the store attacks him. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, this escalates unbelievably quickly because um, a physical exchange ensues, which I think involves, by my count, a minimum of seven people and a couple of uh, destroyed shelving displays. I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I will say, Craig gives a pretty decent account of himself in this fracas. Um, I mean, he does enough to um, fight off all the people that are trying to restrain him and also take off into the store, thus making him this kind of unknown quantity. <laughs> my favourite moment is when Sam Raimi's character, Randy, kind of just wanders absently into the, like, into the frame and he's immediately assaulted. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I love that. It's, it seems like it's such a harsh treatment, um, really. But uh, yeah, no, very funny, I thought. Yeah, he's unaccountably violent to absolutely everybody. And uh, then hmm. uh, it falls to the night staff to seek him out and remove him. You say seek him out? That's because he takes to his heels and disappears into the bowels of the supermarket. Yeah, uh-huh. But he's come in here. He's been like sufficiently violent to everybody and stuff. That credible theory at this point, knowing nothing going in, is that... What you're about to watch, the remaining 70 minutes of this film, is going to be them trying to find him and him potentially killing people. There's actually very little of that. Hardly any at all. Um, This is kind of, like I say, this comes across (laughs) like it could be the central conflict of the entire thing and then resolves itself almost immediately. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd say maybe another five or ten minutes and they've got him outside the store. He's locked out. Yes, exactly, yeah. And uh, before that, there's not a massive amount in terms of particulars to really get into before that happens, apart from the fact that uh, Linda combs the shop floor and is jump-scared by Tim. So we meet Tim. Yep, uh, there's some cool uh, music cues here. Um, One of them in particular, when they're creeping around and hunting them, feels very much lifted straight out of Ghostbusters. Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 I hear that, for sure, definitely. Uh, Also, crucially, we meet uh, Dan Hicks' Bill here. We do, yeah, yeah, and Danny, the store owner. Well, actually, uh, Bill and Danny, co-owners of the store. Yeah, Bill just short of a controlling stake in this one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. By the way, all this stuff that kind of leads up to Craig reappearing and being ejected from the store is really just a handy geographic roadmap of the layout of the shop. Yep, that is useful, definitely. And you're right, it doesn't do a great deal more than that, in all honesty. Mm. And we do have kind of like a few minutes of them just kind of digging around trying to find Craig. Bill gets it into his head that um, he might be in the attic, but when he goes up there, all he finds is a whole bunch of darkness. (laughs) Uh, Can I also just say, we talk a lot on this show about police ineptitude. Oh my god, this is this is potentially the uh, the absolute ultimate in police ineptitude. Perhaps, perhaps, but even in this early stage, it's impossible to get through to someone on the phone. Yes, emergency services in whatever time this is, unbelievably unreliable. I think it might be Walnut Lake. Of course it is, but uh, Jennifer does eventually yeah. get through to the police, and Craig comes back at this point. Quick conversation before this, which uh, made me laugh where they talk about wacky tobacco. But yeah, yeah, Craig appears again, at the, at, I guess, mid-call to the police, and they don't seem at all bothered that this call is cut off. But he just grabs her and starts like really aggressively kissing her and licking her face. Yeah, again, horrendous, just like continued grossness. He's pretty much managed to cram grossness into every second of screen time at this point, I think, really. Uh, however, uh, he lets his guard down while he's forcing himself on her and is apprehended and ejected. I really like the shot when they throw him out of the shop. <laughs> you mean the extended shot where he's just standing outside the glass doors and they're all like, Go on! Yeah, get out of here! Yeah, they're all reflected in it. Fuck off! <laughs> pretty much telling him to get out of here. Go home. Um, uh, yeah, pretty much that one. Um, they it- all get a line as well. They all get something to say. Uh, that's something that happens again later on when they're on their break and they're all sat around that table when they all have just like pointless banter dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're right though. It's like it's, it's very very pointedly gives everyone a line. <laughs> Like, everyone goes around the table and gets a witticism. That's funny. However, we do find out that um, a troublesome ex-con is the least of their worries at this point. Um, Everyone is about to lose their jobs. The shop is getting sold. Bill, I think, a little bit quick to pass the buck on to Danny here. Also, I would say Bill incredibly quick to deliver this news in quite a blunt fashion. Uh, Yes, I would say tossed off in a fairly blasé way. (laughs) It's like, get your coats, lads, you're out of a job. Yeah, it's like, uh, bad news. Because he literally, I think he literally says, you're all going to lose your jobs. The shop's getting sold. <laughs> and that's just that. Cause it, yeah, because it's in the aftermath of that when they're all like, uh, we should have joined a union. I've got overtime banked. Uh, oh, it's not a big deal for me. I can get unemployment. 
Yeah, that line came from Bub, who's a character I want to touch on in a bit because he's fucking hilarious. I want to dig in on Bub as well. I feel like saying that he is my favourite doesn't sound quite right, but yeah. he's mm. definitely the one that I'm most keen to talk about of the kind of cast of characters that are in here. Um, at this point, I kind of looked at it and I was like, how are we a quarter of the way through this already? It doesn't waste any time, this one. It doesn't waste any time at all, no. I mean... These 83 minutes disappear at quite the clip. Absolutely, they really, really do. And just to expand a little bit about what goes on around this table at break time when they're, they're all sitting chatting about the various ways they could make money and the various things they could be doing where, uh, instead of working in this store. Mm-hmm. This is the moment where Bill kind of digs a little bit deeper into his relationship with Danny and we learn that certainly Bill believes that as controlling shareholder, Danny has kind of strong-armed him into selling the shop. Yeah, this kind of ties in a little bit with what I was saying um, on the fact that I kind of feel like, uh, I don't know, I feel like Bill is like, because he he owns 49% of it and Danny owns the other 51, I think it's very mm. it's a very convenient way for him to, for it to feel at least like he's kind of passing the buck a little bit, being like, oh, well, it wasn't me, it wasn't my decision. Yeah. A character we haven't mentioned up to this point, who we've already met, who's also wonderful as Produce Joe. Produce Joe. Yes, absolutely. Played here by Ted Raimi. Yeah, Ted Raimi, who wears a Walkman for the entire duration of the film and is quite lovely, but he is told here, he's not present for the, the chat about the shop being sold. He's told that in a throwaway comment when Randy, Sam Raimi's character, sticks his head into the room and just shouts at him, You lost your job, Joe! Yeah, I'm not going to lie. The visual joke of uh, him never being, or the kind of, the audio visual joke, I guess, of him never being able to hear anything or catch anything because he's always got his headphones in made me laugh, like, more often or more frequently than I care to admit. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I, I, like, it, it's a surprising, a surprising hit rate on those jokes, I think. At this point, or at least around about this point, Craig, not to be defeated, not to be deterred, calls a store and speaks to Jennifer briefly. She hangs up, and at this point, she starts telling, I believe it's Linda, a little bit more about the kind of background between those two. And we find out that <laughs> they were together a year ago for two months. Mm, yeah, two months doesn't seem that long to be behaving this way, but I think he's a pretty unhinged character, which we confirm almost immediately when we learn that he beat a bouncer to death. Uh, yeah, um, we'd, we hear that he killed someone by accident. And honestly, if I had a pound for every time that's happened to me... That you've killed someone by accident? Yeah, man, honestly. We, we've all been Well, Nicholas Cage did that in Con Air, and look what happened to him. Exactly. Everything worked out fine for him. He was in the colour out of space. <laughs> so at this point, there's a jump scare of a scary magazine. Yep, mm-hmm, yep, yep, that classic horror trope. What did we have on the front cover there? Because it looks like, you know the band Tourisass? Uh, yes, mm-hmm, I'm familiar. It looks like one of them, but they they were probably about I don't know, maybe fourteen when this came out. Yeah, it looked like it was called. It was, it was an edition of Sting magazine. Oh, uh, which is good because it's accompanied by a musical Sting every time you see it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like a vaguely menacing-looking guy with like what looks like half-finished war paint on his face. Mm, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, he cro- he crops up a couple of times. We also at this point. Uh, Jennifer goes for a wee walk um, around the store and finds that not Mm -hmm. only has Craig assaulted many members of staff, but he's also left um, surprisingly articulate love notes all over the store as well. Well, he's written them on the shelves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, like, I'm just, you know what? I'm just kind of surprised that he was carrying a pen and could write so legibly in such an emergency situation. Well, he could have got the pen from the store. I guess so. I don't don't believe we see a stationary aisle, but there could be one. There's an entire aisle devoted to popcorn, so um, there's probably an aisle that sells some pens oh yeah god there's probably a pen emporium then um at this point jennifer heads to the basement and is comforted by dave mm, um, yeah, dave dave the hero of the piece or you think he's going to be you think he's going to play a bigger part but he does not he sucks yeah he does a bit doesn't he um yeah but you're right he's kind of like all american kind of like if this was set at the high school kind of quarterback kind of guy that you would have framed as being the guy that would ultimately save the day here but um he doesn't mm. at all he also asks jennifer out uh comforts her a little bit then asks her out she says yes at this point bill intervenes and uh he uh dave leaves and bill says that he's got a potential job prospect for jennifer as well jennifer especially in horror films one of the most kind of productive trips to a basement there's been in a while definitely it's going to be i think the last time in this film that she visits that basement and good things happen yeah but coming out of there with a date for the weekend and a job offer not bad (laughs) you've got to believe though given how the things play out that there wasn't really a job offer to speak of I suppose not, but again, we don't know that at this point. <laughs> Did you notice um, when uh, Linda gets the phone call from her husband asking her to bring home beer and you've got that cool phone cam? Yes, yeah. 
You love to see it. I really do love to see it. I really love the phone cam. And, and you can see similar things across the runtime of the film where Scott Spiegel just loves things dropping onto a camera. Yeah, really does. But Linda, at this point, cements herself as a goner, in my estimation, because she breaks the never make plans for after the war rule. Absolutely. You know, anytime anyone takes a second to tell you what their big plan is for the evening, it kind of reminds me, the reason that I call it they don't make plans for after the war thing is because it's a classic war movie thing, isn't it? When somebody takes out a kind of weather-beaten picture of their girl at home and talks about when they get home, they're going to go have a family (laughs) and all this kind of thing. The equivalent of that in this is her taking the call from Teddy and saying, oh, I'm going to go home, I'm buzzing to go home and see Teddy, I'm going to pick up these drinks, we're going to have a lovely evening. Are you fuck? Yeah, she is not. But what I will say is now's probably a good juncture to talk about Bub because we do learn some other tidbits about Craig here. Whether they're true or not, the story is told to us by Bub. Yeah, Bub, interesting character, um, in my opinion. Got quite a vocabulary on him, but still comes across as a little bit spaced out. I got real Tommy Wiseau vibes from him. That's fair, yeah. In his delivery, I have to say, not his appearance at all. No, in his delivery, I do hear that, though, because like it, it does kind of feel like, I feel like he's been written kind of very, kind of like, super, like quite smart-alecky dialogue and all that kind of thing, but he does sound a bit like he's reading it for the first time. Definitely, but he tells us that historically, Craig seemed to be on the right track, and then he got into drugs, and he was always buying very serious drugs. Yep, the serious kind. That's the worst kind, you know. Mm, yeah, yeah. And um, then he talks a little bit about the Hamilton Beach Blender incident. I'm really glad that you also wrote down Hamilton Beach Blender. <laughs> I didn't actually write down what the fuck it was. I've written it down there and I'm like, right, wait, hang on. So wait, someone beat Craig almost to death with a blender? Um, There was an incident because Craig is a former good friend of Bob's, uh, but emphasis on the former. And there was an incident where uh, Bob firmly is of the opinion that Craig would have killed him in that instance were it not for the fact that his brother, whether it's Craig's brother or Bob's brother, I'm unsure, intervened and beat Craig in the head repeatedly with a Hamilton Beach Blender. Big love to Hamilton Beach Blenders. Yep, uh-huh, yep. As as um, kind of the product placement goes, I would say that it's, it's kind of novel, but I like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you never see um, one in action, but you hear, you know, if you hit somebody in the head with it hard enough, you'll knock them out cold. Yeah, and how, how do you plan to showcase the Hamilton Beach Blender in your film? Mm, pretty much a guy gets uh, beaten to death on camera. No, anecdotally. Uh, no, no, yeah, exactly. No, it's like no, it's like oh, so we're like, well, will, will we see the logo? Will it be facing the camera? It's like no, it's like will um, the potential victims when they're thinking, will they just kind of like, will they have a relaxing smoothie? <laughs> Like, no, not that either. It's like, no, someone's going to tell a second-hand story about someone uh, getting bashed in the head by one. Yeah, but we will awkwardly shoehorn in the entire name of the device. Yep, absolutely. It's like, we will not speak at all to its quality as a blender or its capacity to blend fruit. What we will say is that it is a clunky enough piece of machinery that it will knock out a human. <laughs> and that's all you're getting. <laughs> that you can be confident that you could almost, almost beat a man to death with it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. At this point, another kind of roundtable discussion happens and Bill lightens the mood with a horrifying story from his time as a volunteer fireman. Mm, this exact same story almost appears in Raising Arizona. Ah, I did not remember that. I have seen it, but not for a very long time. I forgot that then. Um, I also want to talk about, we spoke about police ineptitude earlier. The first instance of it was the um, kind of switchboard operator level because the line was engaged for a very long time. But um, the police show up at this point long after Craig has been removed. And uh, long after they should be on duty, like, age-wise, because they have sent the oldest policemen. Uh, Yes, that's true. And uh, to be fair, they don't have any particular interest in doing much of use. They get there long enough to identify or hear about the fact that that it's Craig that's at the centre of it. And they're like, oh, that guy's incredibly dangerous. Well, be careful, bye. (laughs) But I guess to their eye and to pretty much everyone in the store by this point, Things have blown over, largely. It's business as usual. People are essentially doing what they're there to do, stacking shelves, cutting chickens. Yeah, the conversation also has broadly shifted away from uh, the multiple assaults and the incident uh, with the interloper and now very much onto what everyone is going to do after the store is sold and they're all out of the job. We do lose Linda around here. Her big evening plans are derailed by her being stabbed by an unseen man with an enormous knife. You know me and you know how I feel about oversized kitchenware. Yes, this is a point that you've revisited several times previously. This is up there. This is almost a sod. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much, definitely. At this point, shortly after this happens, Bill is alone um, and goes to investigate a noise. Uh, he heads outside, hammer in hand, ready to uh, defend the homestead, as it were. Initially, we think that it was a dog. It was not. Mm. It was Craig, who hasn't gone far since he was uh, since no. he was ejected from the store. He was still hanging around. This is the first chance we get for like a long, hard look at Craig's mullet, and it really is something, isn't it? It's pretty good. Um, the front doesn't do it justice. I mean, that's the, the very nature of a mullet. Uh, but yeah, in the scuffle, you see it with a, a lot more clarity. Yeah, I th- uh, One I thing I so. did want to say is I really like the shot just before Bill makes his way out where he's watching the door handle turn. And the camera is also turning. Mm, there are some really cool shot choices in this. Yeah, I, again, it's it feels very much like Scott Spiegel going, I really love Sam. I love what he does. Uh, and just doing the same thing. Craig, pretty creepy here, has been spying on Jennifer while she was in the basement. Mm. Um, but yeah, at this point, we're kind of heading on a bullet train to murder town. <laughs> I want to mention the fact that like, and again, you have seen, and kind of like, because you've said that this was in 1989, slashers were kind of on their way out for the first time. Mm-hmm. It would be it would be like you know another six seven years before um the before it got the kind of kick in the arse that Scream gave it and that kind of thing. You are much more conversant with this era of slashers than me, so I feel uh-huh. like this is a reasonable juncture for me to introduce a question, <laughs> um, and to defer to your superior knowledge on the subject. So, um, my question is that what I've noticed is that this structurally this film wastes no time in getting into its kind of central conflict it introduces all the characters that you need mm-hmm. to know about and all their motivations and kind of the entire frame and device of the story within about the first 20 minutes or so then there's the kind of the beginning of an escalation and then you have what feels like about a 25 to 30 minute murder montage yes like there's a, like a, a lot of very rapid fire deaths which and i know that that sounds like a kind of massive statement of the obvious for slashers but i don't feel like post revival post scream there was necessarily the same tendency towards this solid block of a bunch of people being killed off with very little plot beats in between i mean i i feel like post scream there was a lot more you had to know a lot more about somebody's motives and a lot find out a lot more about the killer you had to kind of humanize the killer a lot more and i would say that the reason for the rampage in this film is so flimsy that it ultimately doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't something that, in the fullness of time, when I'd seen the whole film, it wasn't something that I felt like it was missing at all. Right. Yeah, it was kind of just a curiosity to me on account of the fact that I don't recall having watched a slasher from any era when there was such a rapid-fire succession of murders, and I was just curious to what extent that was endemic to 80s slashers in general, and to what extent you thought that it was particularly leaned on here. I just think that this is a film where they were really quite keen to show every murder. You know, quite often in slasher films, you get a knife coming in, you get a big scream, and you get a cut to black, and you don't actually get the payoff. Um, sometimes you, I'd say you maybe get like 75 to 80% maybe of the payoff in, a, in your average slasher film. Mm-hmm. But this feels very much like a film made by total horror geeks who were getting to play around in a relatively decent-sized sandpit as far as special effects were concerned. Yeah, absolutely. And they decided to lean very heavily into it and just try to put out something that is incredibly nasty when it has to be. Yeah, in a kind of play-to-your-strengths kind of way. Yeah, and it, it, to me it just very much feels like let's just be as gross as we can be with this because actually a, a lot of slasher films aren't that gory the death counts are high but you often don't see that much and it's certainly not really labeled on to this extent yeah there's maybe like a 40 to 50 percent off-camera death rate i would say in the average one um so yeah i I do quite like how um how kind of confrontational and kind of unflinching this film is with uh, almost all the deaths not least uh, danny yeah yeah danny's death (laughs) i feel actually feel really bad for danny because i mean this is horrible in the moment but he kind of uh, it seems like his torments never end. It is kind of a minute, at the absolute minimum, a two-stage death, um, mm, yeah. because the mm. the initial attempt is to strangle him. Uh, he struggles with this a fair bit, but uh, does enough to uh, turn the PA system on. Can't really mm-hmm. cry for help, but everyone does just hear him being choked to death over the tannoy, which I thought was quite funny. No one cares, though. <laughs> no, no one gives a fuck, no. Um, and also, uh, why is it that he gets his face smashed into here? It's a receipt spike. A receipt spike. That's what I figured. Um, what I do love here, after his face has been mashed into that, the visual trick of the blood dripping onto the kind of upturned lamp uh-huh. that ultimately kind of gradually bathes the room in a red glow all the way in on that. Yeah, yeah. That, that had been previously done in Evil Dead. <laughs> 
Yeah, of course, but you know, it's still nice to see. Uh, sadly, at this point, we are closing in on time to pour one out for Produce Joe. Yeah, yeah. Again, I feel like I would have liked to have seen more of Produce Joe's death. Again, it seems it's it's gross and stuff, but it could have been it could have been more. It should have been more. He actually gets a nice little icing on the cake moment later, which always makes me laugh. Yep, mm-hmm. nice little nice little callback. But yeah, he's he's just kind of he's just straight up macheted through the head, really. Yeah, um, yeah pretty much exactly that. Um, straight out the back of this, uh, another fairly unceremonious one. Tim dies. Tim's a character who really hasn't had much impact in the film at all, apart from we know that he's had at least five or six beers on shift. Uh, yeah, uh huh, yeah. So like, yeah, he 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 may be a nice person, maybe a good guy. We don't know. Will not necessarily be missed for his uh, contributions to retail, but maybe as a person. No, no. But he he also spends a fair amount of time popping his hands out and scaring people and uh, leading while people kiss. I have a couple of questions about the first of those two things. Um, that we'll get to in a sec, but um, but yeah, he's gone, and like I say, it's 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 kind of a it's a, a suitably kind of understated death for someone that we're not really expected to care very much about. That's right. Yeah, Bob here is the next to go, and he uh, does something which I didn't realize bothered me particularly until it happened here i've got to say just before this though there's there's something that happens quite frequently and it starts to really make me laugh every time it happens like dave's attempts to stack laundry detergent are hampered by bub being a total weirdo yeah that's a weird thing to go back to the well on but they do they do they do it several times and for me it gets funnier every time considering (laughs) like people are constantly dying but this still seems like this is the thing that tickles the killer enough that he should keep going back and doing it yeah. despite it not necessarily being for the benefit of the person who it was intended to annoy in the first place it is quite funny i think yeah but um uh yeah but, but like i said we lose bob at this point and bob does something here that i didn't realize bothered me until it happened in this film and you know that thing where you're kind of mm-hmm. like oh that's an annoying thing and then you have your kind of kobayashi ceramics moment where you look back and realize that it's in loads of films oh uh, yeah yeah when he when bob confronts tim's corpse and talks to it for an extended period of the time tim of course died as he lived Covered in beer, um, because he's, he's impaled on the beer with another extremely large knife. Yeah, um, but you're right. I mean, basically, uh, Bob comes in and he's like, oh, who's here? Is it you, Tim? And then shouts to him for ages when Tim is dead. Um, this is kind of, I think, you can kind of, in terms of things that annoy me in slasher films and horror films, you can file this under a similar bracket to characters talking to each other for extended periods of time. I think that him shouting to someone who doesn't answer back for a really long period of time is almost as annoying. It's quite clear that he's dead. Yeah, it is. It is. Also, I think that like if I'd come in and I'd been doing that for like a full minute, I would be like, are you all right, man? <laughs> you know, like at some point, yeah. at some point, I would be like, uh, could you just like knock twice for yes, please? Perhaps it's a blessing then that Bob gets his goofy fucking head put in a trash compactor. Yeah, another good death. Really like this one, actually. Um, one of my favourites because uh, he's kind of like yeah. he's choked for a bit, and then yeah, like you say, he has his face unceremoniously crushed slash compacted. <laughs> Put one out for Randy. He's next to go. So so fast at this point, they're coming thick and fast. See what I mean? This is like uh, I think that like, and like I say, I haven't seen enough of these to comment, but this feels incredibly rapid fire. I think again, another another thing that slashers like to do is they they like to build up this kind of glut of deaths in the middle to give this final girl showdown chance to breathe yeah mm -hmm. and yeah i guess we'll get to the things about that that don't tick my boxes as well (laughs) if you think of friday the 13th right there's probably 20 minutes towards the end of that film where it's just adrian king and betsy palmer yeah that's true i think that a lot of slashers live and die on that part for me and we'll get to that in a sec i guess so we'll get that we'll get to that soon enough but I have a question about this as well, and it's about just kind of like this group, and I say it's a question, I don't expect you to have an answer. You don't know any sure. more about these characters than I do. But how often, on an average day, do these people play pranks on each other? Because anytime mm. anyone goes anywhere, they seem to assume that someone's playing a long-form practical joke on them. That, I would say, is quite a common slasher trope. There's always wankers jumping out at you there's always stuff like that i wouldn't say that that's entirely a criticism you can levy at the staff of the walnut lake market or at least not without uh, painting with broader strokes and a condemnation of that as a trope (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely It, it, it comes across as incredibly cruel at times considering you know what's going on around it you're like right now is not the time there's something that always surprises me in slasher films is there comes a point 
where ten's been whittled down to four and no one really cares. Like no one's like, where the fuck is everybody? Where is everyone? Yeah, I kind of feel like there is um there's almost a need to um especially in kind of more lighthearted slashers, I feel like there's a need to retain a certain element of humor. And I think that the kind of willingness to do that kind of at all costs means mm. that sometimes you see something like this happen and it's just like five people are dead. <laughs> But then there's always they always come away with some kind of pithy answer for it. They're like, oh, maybe they've gone into town, or, or maybe they've all shacked up together. But you're like, no, yeah, don't so, think rationally here. That's incredibly unlikely. Yeah, no, so that the, they would the, just go and not tell anyone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, all the things that you're suggesting are wildly improbable. <laughs> wildly, but like, it's, it's incredibly glib explanations. <laughs> Um, I don't want to shoot past the death of Randy too quickly without saying that I just think that um, him getting Texas Chainsaw in the eye. No, no, no. He gets through the jaw. He gets hung through the through the mouth. Ah, now right. So did I put this up wrong then? Because I thought it was through the eye because later on when Jennifer discovers his body, she stands on an eye. Well, if you recall, there's a moment earlier where Randy is eating a jar of olives and he almost eats an eyeball. Yeah, of course, of course, right. So, so I'm going to say eye. that eyeball belongs to Danny. Right, I, I see, I see. Don't I feel foolish? You see, but Danny doesn't. Indeed, <laughs> yes, very much so. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Randy is, is dead here, and, and this is quite cool watching Sam Raimi swinging about here. He's, he's really leaning into the I'm a swinging corpse thing. Yes, I, when the body's discovered, I think that that is great. It's really fun, I think. And uh, Dave's battle with detergent shows no sign of slowing down. Nope, yeah, we do break to that briefly. <laughs> More investigations uh, on Jennifer's part. At this point, she discovers Danny, who is not dead yet. No, 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 God's sake, poor Danny. But um, I do have written down, for the first time ever I've used this abbreviation in my notes, but I've got ASOSD. What the fuck does that mean? A state of some distress. Ah, I think it's fair to assume that he's in a state of some distress. He is missing an eye. Yeah, he's having a time. How did he get up there? How in his delirium did he find his way up into the attic? Such an interesting choice as well. Because, like, you know, not generally optimal place to go for assistance. No, but I actually think the appearance of Danny here is quite unsettling. Like, the way he's, like, begging for help. And, like, Dave's so shook by this that he, like, tumbles out of the attic. It is good. Yeah, it is good. Also, like, I think that, yeah, there's something, there's something about the way that he's lit. It's super creepy. I feel like all the lighting in this is incredibly harsh. Mm-hmm. It's really just like one light bouncing right off someone. Yeah, you see it a lot with you see it a lot with Randy in particular when he's creeping around his workshop, which seems to be completely gloomy at all times, which doesn't seem like the best environment. Like I said earlier, it does not seem sanitary. Does not seem safe to be cutting meat in the dark. No, 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 no. Like, like perilously underlit. But he's just blasted with one solid light the whole time. And uh, the same can be said for Danny up in this attic here. And yeah, I think it actually adds to how creepy and fucked up he looks. Absolutely, absolutely. Like I say, I, th- I think that this entire discovery is uh, is really cool. It's really effective. Uh, Jennifer, yeah, like resolutely uh, investigating strange noises, despite that not working out well for anybody ever. But yeah, as good a discovery as this is. Dave does not hang around for much longer. No, no, no. No sooner has he fallen out of the attic when he's rushed by the killer. And it very much looks like he's like he has his ear chopped off or he has like a massive flap of skin cut off the side of his face with a cleaver, which is pretty horrible. Mm-hmm, it is, um, yeah. Although it's very fleeting. It's kind of blink and you'll miss it. But then he's dragged... You, you, you'd have to blink for an incredibly long time to miss Dave's death, which for my money is the best kill in the film. Okay, you want to speak to that for a sec? I absolutely do, yeah. He's uh, dragged over to the... I've written it as the poultry slicer, but it really just looks like a bandsaw. Yes, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. But for this purpose, poultry slicer. Yeah, and he is sliced through the face, kind of, I would say, across the philtrum. Cheek, philtrum, cheek, and out. (laughs) Yep, that's a good assessment. I'm happy with it. And, uh, yeah, it's insane. It's spectacular. Yep, it's protracted. It's nasty. It's multi-layered. And uh, to cap it all off, we come right out of this back into, boom, Scary Magazine. Absolutely, yeah, if in doubt, just default to Scary Sting Magazine. (laughs) Let's bring that straight back. As Jennifer flees the scene here, I was all set to praise her resilience. I actually had started writing down that she was a very resilient and kind of like very kind of aware of her environment and that kind of thing. And then she fell down a garbage chute and I scored it out. (laughs) 
she is absolutely the least aware of her environment. She wanders around oblivious to the corpse bits that are like scattered all around the supermarket. There's like a hand in with the lobsters, there's eyes on the floor, there's like human tissue on every surface. Uh, yes, yeah. It's, it's pretty gross. It's pretty great. I guess it does speak to... Uh, I mean, I don't know how... I'm sitting here going, oh, she's a fucking asshole. Imagine not noticing all that. But if I'm creeping around a dark supermarket, am I going to am I going to notice all that? Yeah, you know, if you don't know to look for it, would you? Yeah, I don't know. You know, something to consider. Just be like, that's a funny looking lobster. <laughs> she goes back inside uh, the actual kind of supermarket proper at this point and appears to um, accidentally kill Craig. Craig, once accidental murderer, now accidental dead guy. Well, by this point, she has uh, seen at least one bisected body. She has seen the corpse of Randy. So she's, a, I think it's safe to say that she's on edge. Uh, yeah, I would say if I was in her situation, I also might not be operating at my most rational. <laughs> and let's be honest, I'd, I'd say it's fair to assume that Craig has leaped into the number one suspect slot here. Yes, I think that based on the information as presented, I think that the most credible theory that's on the table is that your uh, that your killer is Craig. Um, however, he's not. Bill returns to the fray at this point, having recovered from being knocked out earlier. Um, and on particularly mm-hmm. jovial form uh, as he comes back to comfort an intensely traumatised Jennifer. But yeah, it's it's on at this point. Um, yeah, he doesn't fuck around with the reveal here. We find out very quickly that uh, that Bill is the killer. I want to talk about uh, something Danny Hicks does here. Ah, but what's the giveaway, Mitch? How do we, how do we start to know that it's Bill, aside from the cover-up? to various releases I mean, like, before she knows. Uh, from my point of view, I didn't. It took until she was like, oh my God, you're the killer? So uh, if, I'm, if I miss an obvious visual cue, now's the time to tell me. Well, you have, because earlier when she's kind of pursued by the killer, still being kind of shadowy and faceless at this point, why do killers always try to stop a door closing by putting their arm through it? It does seem foolish, doesn't it? You have a perfectly good yeah, boot that... on your foot there. Use your foot. Yeah, you could. I mean, that's a recipe for a broken arm. Or in this case... In Bill's case, she stabs him in the hand with a hook, mm-hmm. and then he gets his own uh, vein juice all over her. Yeah, and this you're saying is the smoking gun. This is the smoking gun, and he realises it round about the same time Jen does. If there's one thing that um, we should have known about my analysis to films and my like level of being observant or otherwise, it should have been when I also missed the smoking gun in Murder Rocks. Smoking guns, potentially not my strong suit. No, I think you're... Uh, you're you're oblivious to smoking guns. You're as oblivious to smoking guns as the policemen who turn up at the end of this film. <laughs> yeah, they're the characters that I could identify the most readily with. <laughs> I want to watch a film about those guys. Yeah, it's like, oh, you know, they look like the kind of guys I could have a beer with. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Bill is the killer. And I've got to say, Danny Hicks is fucking excellent. Yeah. When he leans into being crazy, he goes for it in a way that is never not entertaining. Yeah, I think that um, this is kind of a frustrating juncture in the film for me because I I think that the minute that we realise that it's him, I love when he chases her to the door and he's jumping across all the checkouts chasing her. Brilliant. I think that's amazing. Yep, it's, like, it's such a cool idea, but the way that it's shot when you just see him kind of from the back leaping across them all, it's so, so good and such a cool uh, kind of physical performance. Um, yeah. Really, really rate it. But this does trigger the point in both this film and most slashers where I feel like I tend to zone out. Okay, I get it. Because this, this in particular is quite a protracted hunt and chase sequence. By the way, just if anyone's interested in his motives, he did it for the store. Sure, because um, uh, yeah, by by killing everyone who was on the staff, he had everyone yeah, he on the staff's he... best interests at heart. Yeah, absolutely. Of course he did. But he says he got carried away. I'll fucking say, put a man on a bandsaw. Yeah, that's a way of putting it. Yeah, I yeah yeah. Oh, you got carried away, did you? It's like yeah, you suck a hook through someone's mouth. This is the first time in the film where someone refers to the staff as the night crew, which was originally going to be the title of the film. The night crew was that okay? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Or just night crew. I don't know how I feel about Intruder as a title. Now you say it. I guess the only purpose I could see it serving would be a red herring as to who the killer was, because when you say Intruder, you kind of assume it was someone from outside, so you'd be inclined to think it was Craig. But I feel like well, that's uh, uh, that's absolutely it. I believe negated somewhat by having uh, Danny Hicks uh, depicted very menacingly in the artwork for the film. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know if I would prefer the Night Crew, but um, I feel like Intruder is a title that kind of has its problems. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, like I say, I think that this is this is kind of frustrating to me because I think that what you have here is a really committed performance from Danny Hicks, who is selling crazy every inch of this, like every step mm. of the way, every step of the way. But hunt and chase sequences, to my mind, with very few exceptions, are dull. And as a result, I find this quite hard to engage with, regardless of how good the work is that is going on around it. Well, in this moment, she spends a lot of time. She runs up, I've referred to the kind of popcorn aisle earlier. By the way, who needs that much popcorn? They're selling, you know those massive yellow sacks of popcorn? Yes, yeah, yeah. Three dollars, by the way, when a little thing of Jiffy Pop is 99 cents. Get yourself a sack of popcorn. I mean, economic reasons only, like, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Although, with those kind of deals on offer, I can kind of understand why the shop's going out of business. Oh, yeah, they're hemorrhaging money, as we know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, she has moved the shelves to create this sanctuary where she's hiding out. And it takes the man who owns the store an eternity <laughs> to find her, rather than just looking for where the shelves have been repositioned. That that store has been his life for 10 years. Um, this is like the equivalent of me loving an actor and then not identifying him when he has an unexpected moustache in a film. You do that often. I do. Was, was that Richard Jenkins? <laughs> you talking about let me in? <laughs> yes um uh yeah you're right it's, it is strange that it takes them so long to suss this out however despite my general disdain for hunt and chase sequences an amazing trick here when she thinks that she's found a still alive danny but what she's found instead is bill pranking her with danny's head yeah th- this again just feels like salt in the wind for danny like this feels this is very much desecration of the corpse of the guy that bill feels has wronged them Yep, to such an extent that he's embarked on this path of carnage, really. It's really the only way you can describe it. But uh, yeah, this is very funny. It's it's a very funny reveal. You're like, I can't believe that man is still alive. Craig reappears kind of around this time because, like I said, I kind of want to cut through the bullet points of the Hunt and Jays because it goes on for a little while. Before she escapes, though, because like, we're coming up to, I guess, the, the final moment, I feel like, the final standoff. There's some really cool stuff actually, like where Danny Hicks really leans into being crazy. Like the moment where he reenacts the story that he was telling earlier, where he's eating the sandwich and he's carrying Danny's head and he's talking about like the Raising Arizona story from earlier. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, that's it's, it's cool how that's it's cool how that's revisited. I like that a lot. Yeah, and also the return to Craig here when he kind of comes back and attacks Bill, and he's uh, <laughs> thrown to the ground and severely beaten with a severed head. <laughs> yeah yeah he, do, he does he, he does have to take that thrashing for a little while isn't he that would be sore i don't know if you've ever been headbutted but that would be really sore you know i haven't certainly not intentionally i've been kind of like i've been kind of you know when like maybe at a gig or something when somebody's been washing or something and the back of their head catches you in the nose oh I, i've had that but i've never had like i've never had it done to me with like the express intention to cause harm i would imagine that the longer it goes on the kind of more spongy it gets yeah, I would say that's true. God, that's also fucking gross. Jesus, spongy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that you're right. I think that that is um, that. It's a cool thing. That entire sequence is kind of um, it breathes a little bit of life into a portion of the slasher film broadly that I tend to struggle with. And there's something to be said for that for sure. But Jennifer ultimately escapes the outside, gets into the payphone, tries to call for help. At this point, she has. A, I think it's important to flag up that her call to the emergency service gets interrupted. But she gets all the information across that she needs to. They know the situation yeah. and they, like, they know there's an incident and they know the address. They are on their way for what we see unfold from here on out. Yeah, this is right before Bill launches himself horizontally like a missile through the phone box. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Which is also amazing, actually. Um, tips it over. At this point, you think it might all be kind of curtains for Jennifer. But uh, Craig comes back long enough to deliver a death blow to Bill. Or so numerous death blows. He thrashes him as if uh, with that cleaver as if it were a severed head. Absolutely, yes, with the tenacity of somebody hitting somebody with a severed head. I love what happens here. Uh, this ending is very, very silly. Um, it's so funny. It's like it's 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 openly really quite daft, but also I kind of just you know that thing where you know something doesn't necessarily hold up logically, but you look at it and you're like, ha, yeah. But then. I sometimes watch a film, right, and there's one person left standing at the end, and you're like, why should anyone believe you? Why should people believe that you have been through all this and you've emerged unscathed? You're the last man standing. Why should you be believed? That's an interesting take. And then, I guess, what happens at the end of this film is what you have is 
to the eyes of the police, you have this kind of Mickey and Mallory type. You have a known violent criminal mm-hmm. and his, what they suppose I would imagine to be his girlfriend. And you have someone lying down, hacked to bits with a, a cleaver who, in the eyes of the police anyway, is a well-respected store owner. Ah, okay. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. I hear what you're saying. So, yeah, we do, like the police, to them... Jennifer, probably an unknown quantity, really, to a large extent. But yeah, yeah we- officers Campbell and Bender. Yes, yeah, Campbell and Bender. Yeah, um, turn it up here again, and yeah, like it's been seeded that Craig is this dangerous criminal, mm-hmm. and um, you're right, it's been seeded that Bill is this um, pillar of the community. He's been this kind of staunch, resolute kind of um, promoter of local business for 10 years yeah, plus. Yeah, volunteer firefighter. Volunteer firefighter. So yeah, when uh, they turn up to uh, this unbelievable tableau of dismembered boys at the Walnut Lake Market, and he is in this prone state, in this smashed out phone box, being like, they did this to me and they also did everything else. And the police are like, yeah, okay, man, and just arrest both of them. Yeah, they're immediately grabbed and Mirandized and arrested. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. Like, um, <laughs> um, I couldn't believe the um, the unbelievably quick acquiescence to this as a theory. It's not even a theory. He's just like um, he's just like they did it. And I'm like, okay, that's how it happened. Book him. Sometimes the simplest answer is often the best. I like the fact that you said the best and not the correct one. Well, in this case, I believe it to be. Yeah, yeah you, you are correct. But uh, in this case, I believe it to be the best because I would be intensely unsatisfied if they'd actually arrested Bill and that was the end of it. I like the fact that we are to believe that after some pretty heavy surgery, Bill will walk away from this scot-free. Yeah, I think that I think that um, the kind of the logical questions that I have about that are vastly eclipsed by the fact that it's a much more satisfying ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the only way it could have been better is ultimately if Bill was killed. Yeah, um, but there is something cool about knowing that the bad guy gets away with it. I, I, I honestly like this is this is a weird thing, right? That's been kind of in my DNA for a really long time. So regular listeners to the show will know that I am um, a latecomer to horror as such because I was a little bit of a wimp mm-hmm. when I was uh, watching films when I was younger and didn't watch enough of them. However, before that, when I was very young, I had this tendency to gravitate towards the villains yeah. in whatever I was watching. Disney villains, whatever it was, cartoon villains, anything. I was like, those were the characters that I always kind of wanted to know more about. And there's like pictures of me doing the rounds from when I was like four years old wearing Iron Maiden t-shirts because I thought that Eddie looked cool yeah, and stuff like that. And like, and then I went through a spell in my like late teens, early 20s, where I thought I was like, I, that was my childhood. But with horror, I was like, oh, no, I don't think so. And then obviously, um, I eventually came around and started and kind of got way into that. So I've always gravitated towards villains and preferred stinger endings. Right. And uh, I've like from a kind of weirdly young age, I've always kind of rooted for bad guys. Well, I mean, look what you watched the other day, for example. Right, you watched Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Released the year the year after this, and in that film, the bad guy wins. Yeah, and and who doesn't love the ending at the Silence of the Lambs? It's an amazing ending. It's one of the one of the great endings in cinema, in my in my opinion. I think it's all about being like kind of earned, being kind of tonally appropriate. I think that like when the film lends itself to a dark ending, I think that the film just going there mm-hmm. is to be kind of celebrated. I think that there are also uh, kind of like there's instances where you get these kind of mean spirited endings that I don't think that the film does the work to earn. Yeah, and I actually think that Bill has done enough to earn his ending in this film. I'd be inclined to agree with you. I think that he earnestly is doing what he thinks is right to defend the shop. I mean, it's a series of terrible decisions, but I 100% buy that that's what he thinks is best. Yeah. Because at the start, what is played off as being this kind of earnestness and this eccentricity obviously kind of belies something way, way darker. Um, so I think that when it's eventually revealed that this is him doing what he thinks is like vigilante justice for the future of the store and stuff like that, I can kind of I can kind of connect the dots. So yeah, I kind of agree with you in the sense that like uh, when you realise that the ending is going to be that he kind of air quotes wins, yeah, fine with it. I'm, f- I'm absolutely fine with it. I actually really love the ending to this film. It makes me laugh every time, and every time I kind of forget that it's coming. And then as soon as I see Bruce Campbell getting out of that police car, I'm like, oh yeah, he here we go. Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, Jennifer screams uh, directly into the camera. We see enough of Bill to realise that he hasn't died, and uh, we're out on yeah, the boom, just like that. I was going to say, do you want to go first? But I know that you like it. You've already explained why you like it. Um, uh, I do like it. Yeah, you did that at the top of the show. But f- 
for me, I think that uh, this was a mixed bag, but one that broadly I came out really quite liking. I think that you touched on this, and I think that you're 100% right. You said that basically the criticisms that I have of this film are not things that I can in good conscience levy at just this film. Yeah, that's right. I think that, yeah. like, you know, I think that, the, that what is becoming apparent as we talk about more of these is that there are just broadly some slasher tropes that kind of irritate me. Mm-hmm. So I feel like for as much as I think that those opinions are valid, I feel like it's a little bit trite and a little bit vindictive to just level them at this film. Yeah, and I, I do have criticisms of this film as well. As well. Like, I, I think once it hits its stride and the, the kills start coming, it gets very fun very, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, like, I talked about the fact that I found as a kind of um, as a less well-informed viewer, I guess, I found the kind of the killing montage to be kind of a little bit brisk. But I don't think that it suffers for that. If anything, I think that I quite like the fact that having done a bit of work mm-hmm. with characterization and stuff like that, that I think that like it, it kind of it earns the right to give itself a little bit of free reign to have fun in that spell. Yeah, and you've got a lot of assholes to bump off and not a lot of time to do it. Exactly, it's an eighty-three minute film. Yeah. let's get them. Let's get them gone. Get them gone in record time and move on. Yeah, brevity is a good thing in this uh, in this instance. I think. Um, overall, I like this quite a bit. And like I say, I, th- I think that my I think that my my problems with it are kind of like I don't like hunt and chase sequences that take twenty minutes, but they're in all of these. You know, yeah, and it's like, and and I think that yeah, I I can't just be like, oh, I didn't like Intruder because the hunt and chase bit tacked on. They all do. I think that this is really interesting. I think that you, I agree that there's some ropey performances going on here. I don't think that Danny Hicks is one of those. Yeah, uh, I think that he transitions from eccentrically sympathetic to kind of psychotically obsessed in a way that feels so gradual that I didn't necessarily notice until he was revealed at the end. Right, and there's mm-hmm. something to be said for that. And the kills are fun. Like, a lot of really fun visual stuff going on here. Yeah, good pick. For me, at least. I did notice a few people having a few things to say about it uh, on social media and in the Chud Locker when we mentioned that this was going to be filmed this week. So I would be curious to know what other people are taking away from this. Definitely, yeah. I'd be interested to hear. I'm always interested to hear what's going on in the Chud Locker because I've got no fucking idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, I would say that um, pretty solid pick here. I feel like you generally pick things that we end up agreeing on more than I mm. do. What I, wanted, what I do want to say, though, is to just to stave off the constant criticism that we get that this doesn't need defending. I know this film doesn't need defending. I know this film's great. What I want is for everyone to see it. Yeah, and I think that that's become just as much of the kind of idea of what we're doing here as talking about films mm-hmm. that people generally don't like. I think that if things are great that enough people haven't seen, I think that that merits being talked about as well. Yeah, yeah, and I really think that Intruder deserves to stand on the same level as a lot of the early 80s slashers to me this feels like something that came out at a time when the slasher was dying but to me it was like a breath of fresh air at that time does do an awful lot of stuff right yeah absolutely absolutely but with that we're out on intruder and with no room to uh, talk about what our guest is promoting um, i guess we're almost at the end of the show unless andy you're working on anything in particular that you'd like to mention i'm not really much no to be honest uh, nothing certainly nothing i can talk about now you're one of those people. Okay, fair play. Um, I also don't. I'm really not one of those people. I've just got fuck all to talk about. <laughs> um, I'm having a weird lockdown. I'm being like, I think, like reasonably creative on lockdown, quite productive. Um, but again, not a massive amount I can talk about. But I am writing a musical and uh, doing music for a blinds company. Yeah, 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 yeah. So look yeah. out for those things, horror fans. <laughs> Someone will be sitting watching the blinds adverts and be like, oh. That sounds like a Mitch Payne original. <laughs> Unmistakable. Um, but on kind of slightly more on message topics, we will, of course, be back on Monday with a mini-sode for your ears. And we will be doing all the usual things on there. We will be talking about what we've been watching. Um, hopefully mm-hmm. have a little bit more uh, commentary on the So Home Horror Festival from last weekend for you uh, on there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, also, I will hopefully have crammed in a 90 side quest film by then. Mm-hmm. I say hopefully the window of time to do that is getting smaller but I'm gonna make it we'll be taking a look at your feedback we will of course be playing Mitch's pitches and a whole lot more if you want to get in touch with us between now and then there are of course loads of ways you can do that Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes you can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC you can email scenes at gmail.com and if you want to interact with other listeners on this and any other film we've talked about and pretty much anything else it's becoming an absolute free for all in there you can do on our Facebook group The Chud Locker 
<laughs> yep, and of course, we've got our website, strongviolentpod.com, which you're more than welcome to go and get a look at. And of course, we have our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash stronglanguagevioluntscenes. Uh, we will be releasing patron-exclusive material this week. Yeah, keep watching the skies on that one. We are finally just kind of opening the book on that, striking striking the first blow. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to uh, getting stuck into some new things, uh, us pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone. If you want to get on and support us, head over to the Patreon, take a look. Yeah, we've got some cool tiers over there, some really great stuff you can get your hands on. And of course, if you just want to hear more of our silky tones. We're back on Monday with Minisode 109. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean. 